The reading is from Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of the mool, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have to put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroy, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Uh, good evening. Uh, let me have my welcome. Uh, my name is Matt, uh, Matt Fuller, as uh, many would know, but if you're uh, here for the first time, uh, it'd be lovely to, to at some point meet you. We're in Galatians. We've been here for the last uh, few weeks, uh, if you are joining us tonight. Um, that's how we kind of roll around here. We tend to work our way through books of the Bible. Here we are in Galatians chapter 2. Let me lead us in prayer as we begin. Our great God and Father, we have sung already this evening of this wonderful truth that our only hope before you is Jesus Christ, his righteousness. Uh, and Father, please, would your spirit help us understand far more of that as we turn to your word now, so that we are in no doubt of the freedom that there is in holding to Christ. And we'd live that out consistently. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in the last couple of years, I've uh, discovered or rediscovered, quite enjoyed dinghy sailing, um, which is rock and roll, hey? Um, but, uh, you know, sort of small boats, one, two, three man, maybe boats. Uh, and uh, as you get older and your body can't quite keep up with the demands of a football pitch, it's quite a good sport. Uh, it is good exercise, particularly if you capsize frequently and have to put the boat upright, which has been known. Uh, and I enjoyed it. Uh, and you race, so you can get your competitive juices going uh, if that's your thing and it may be mine, um, so it's good. Now, one thing I've observed, though, in my, uh, my fledgling career as a, a, racing, a dinghy racing, I was about to say specialist, that's not right, uh, incompetent, is um, it is quite easy to go off course. So here you are in a race, and uh, you're going on course, and you think, I'm going to that boy, and then that boy, and then, you know, we're going around this uh, big old uh, triangle or square, whatever it may be, and uh, you've got your, and you think, yeah, no, this is good, I've got good wind, and, you know, well, oh, what's, he, what's he doing? Oh, 
That's a funny course. What are you doing? You're trying to steal my wind. You're trying to nick my wind. Uh, sailors, do you know, if you sail, you have to think, instead of duffing people up, you sort of luff them up, which is you nick their sin. That's a sort of sailors. That's as rough as it gets in sailing. You steal someone else's wind. It's not a contact sport. But um, uh, and you, know, so you, you, you can easily sort of focus on what others are doing. And uh, what are you doing over there? That's eccentric. And before you know it, you're meant to be heading in this direction. You're heading over here because he's very interesting and you want to make him stop him. And you've swerved off course particularly if you're barely competent, uh, as I occasionally am. It's very easy to do that. You know where you're meant to be going. Cognitively, it's very clear in your brain. Your brain knows big pink triangle floating on the ocean. That's where I want to go. You just swerve, of course. It's very easily done. And our little passage here this evening, just a few verses, chapter 2, verses uh, 11 to 21, is a warning that even if you've been a Christian years you can swerve, of course. Peter did it. The first of the disciples, the rock upon which Jesus was going to build his church, got it wrong. Just swerved off course. Verse 14 was just not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Quite easily done. Paul's letter to the Galatians then. We're still in this first section, chapters one and two. Really, uh, the main emphasis of chapters one and two is Paul establishing his authority. You've got to listen to me because God has made me an apostle uh, and I'm not dependent upon anyone else. And he's still establishing that, really. I guess that's the primary aim. But these little verses, 11 to 21, they're probably the densest part of the book. And then he's going to take the next three chapters, well, sorry, two chapters, chapters three and four, to really unpack what's in these verses tonight. So if you don't get it all tonight, it's okay. It's okay. We've got another two chapters uh, to explain what's going on here. It's the first time he introduces what in many ways is the central idea of the book, that we are justified by faith. You can see how central it is in uh, verse 16. We know a person is not justified by works of the law, but justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in him. Not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one is justified. This is fairly obvious tonight and for the rest of the book it's fairly key language. Justified. It's legal language. It's the language of being in a courtroom. Uh, And if you're in the dock and uh, you're the accused, one of two verdicts comes. You are justified or you're condemned. And as we see working our way through the book of Galatians, the whole New Testament, very clear. All of us naturally are condemned. We don't do enough, which is good, for the Lord to accept us into relationship with him, into his heaven. We're condemned. Jesus Christ is the only one who's ever lived a perfect life, who is justified or righteous, same word really. And at the heart of the Christian message is just an exchange. Jesus gives us his justification, his righteousness, and he takes our condemnation. It's an exchange. And that's the language that's going to obsess Paul uh, and to a certain extent us uh, for the rest of this letter. And uh, hopefully tonight we'll begin to see quite how wonderful and liberating that is. Now, if you've been a Christian for many years, you might think, yeah, I know that. I know that. That's kind of ABC in the Christian life. You know, there's a swap upon the cross. Jesus takes what I deserve. I get what he deserved. I kind of know that. I'm not condemned, but I am justified. I know that. Well, just a caution. Peter knew it and got it wrong. Or, here's my favorite quote uh, of the summer when I was reading a bit of Martin Luther on this. 
When you hear, if you're a Christian, okay, watch out. Uh, when you, I won't do a German accent, it'll go badly. When you hear, you want, no. When you hear an immature and unripe saint trumpet that he knows very well that we must be saved by grace without our own works, well then, have no doubt he has no idea what he's talking about. For being justified by faith in Jesus is not an art that one ever completely learns. It is not something you can boast you're a master. It is an art that will always have us as pupils. It remains the master over us. He's saying quite simply, this central truth of the Christian faith, you never master it. It's meant to master you. So it transforms everything about your life. And until it's done that, don't say you know it all. Martin Luther observes. The text is pretty dense uh, in this passage tonight. Uh, I've put on the sheets, uh, I hope that's more of a sort of, for your information, I think. That's how the text breaks down. Um, But I'm not going to refer to it in great detail there. I don't think that's particularly memorable to you. It's just so you understand how the text breaks down. But let me try and be very simple up front. So uh, explain what's going on in just three little equations. Uh, That works for some, I know. Uh, We got them. So here is, um, if we can put it this way, hard legalism, soft legalism, or the gospel. Hard legalism. This is religious thought, which says essentially, if you obey enough of God's rules, that gives you salvation. So that is how most religions sort of think. If you obey well enough, the five pillars of Islam, that gives you salvation. If you obey well enough, 613 laws of Judaism, that gives you salvation. Or in a sort of wishy-washy, neither here nor there, Anglican way, if you're nice enough as a person, then that gives you salvation. Okay? That's hard legalism. You might, the law puts you right with God. Galatians is not about that. Okay, just so you know. It's not what the letter is really about. It's about this one, soft legalism. You have to have faith in Jesus Christ and obey some laws and that gives you salvation. Oh, you've got to have faith in Jesus Christ and obey somewhat and that gives you salvation. Faith plus obedience equals salvation. Whereas the gospel, and what Paul wants us to be really clear on is this, is how it works. Faith in Jesus Christ, that gives you salvation. Full stop. Oh, that will issue in a life of obedience because you can't understand what Jesus has done for you without obeying. But that's, not, that's not in the equation, as it were. Faith in Jesus Christ gives you salvation. Okay? We might leave those up. They may be useful uh, to refer back to. That's very, and this evening, the issue is that soft legalism that Peter goes wrong on. Let's work through it, though. Uh, Here's the issue, verses 11 to 14, first of all. Then Peter swerved away in his behavior. I don't know why I've got Peter. uh, Peter, Cephas, same names. Peter is just the English version of Cephas, which is the Greek name. Go for which one you want. Um, Cephas, rare, more interesting. Um, But it's the Apostle Peter. What's going on? Verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Oh, why? What's that? 
Well, verse 12, because for before certain men came from James, that is, they've come from Jerusalem, Mother Church, he, Cephas, used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Okay, Peter, a Jew, who's become a Christian. When he first arrived in the town of Antioch, very happy to eat with Gentiles, non-Jews, just together, no problem. Then some people come from mothership in a church in Jerusalem and say to Peter, what are you doing? They're from the circumcision group. Clearly they're saying, you need to keep the law of circumcision. Faith in Jesus Christ plus certain laws equals salvation. And Peter is unsettled by this. Clearly Peter changes his behavior and now refuses to eat with the Gentiles anymore. We're told he doesn't change his convictions but he acts in this way, why? Because he was scared. Verse 12. He acted in this way, not because he changed his mind, but he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Why is he afraid? It's not exactly clear. I think probably Jews who'd become Christians were upset with Peter because he was eating with Gentiles who'd become Christians. And they were a bit upset and causing tension probably a bit fearful about what's going to happen there. But the outcome of Peter changing his behavior, verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And here's the issue, verse 14. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel... I said to Cephas, hypocrite, essentially we get to that. So the problem with Peter, Cephas, was that he was not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Literally, he was not walking in line with the truth. So the picture is this, that when you become a Christian, uh, your, your, your mind is changed, you're transformed in what you think about God and about Jesus Christ. And there's a line of behavior that naturally you want to walk now that you've become, you want to obey God. But Peter had swerved in his behavior. You know, if, um, uh, if the police pull you over, you're driving late at night, and uh, or one, not you, obviously, but one is swerving a little bit uh, across the roads, and uh, they may breathalyze you. Uh, no, sorry, that's, that's, that's not going to work, is it? Um, they may breathalyze you. And uh, zero, zero, zero. Well, the test for alcohol is quite straightforward. They may then give you the test for drugs to see if you're driving under the influence of drugs. Do you know what that is? Well, if they really think you're in trouble, they could do a blood test, but that takes ages to get the results. The simple test the police will do is they'll say, look, here's the line, not in the middle of the road, but they'll find a straight line or they have tape and say, excuse me, sir, can you just walk heel to toe along that line? And of course, if you're sober, you can do that. You can walk heel to toe along a straight line, not that hard. If you're under the influence of drugs, you go, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. Look, watch. Watch me do it. There we go. I did it. And you can't. You just can't do it. Because there's an influence upon you. You just swerve away. You know what you're meant to do. You know there's a line there, and you're meant to walk heel to toe upon it. But you can't do it because you're under the influence of drugs. Peter, he knows the gospel 
but he doesn't walk the line because he's under the influence of these other people. He's scared. And so his behavior deviates from what it should be. It swerves away from the truth of the gospel. The shocking thing here in one sense is that Paul and Cephas, they don't disagree on what the gospel message is. Peter just doesn't live it out because of the influence of others. Now that's interesting. You can know what's right, but just fail to live it out because you're scared of what others may think of you. That's the issue. Peter swerved away in behavior. And then what we have in verses 15 to 21, I think, is what's a summary of what Paul said to Peter publicly. Bit awkward, that, two senior apostles having a bit of a... But anyway, it's this sort of, these are the sort of things. I guess here's a summary of what he said in verses 15 to 21. So look, they agree on some things, verses 15 and 16, but they disagree on some things, 17, 18, okay? So look, here, Peter, you and I, we agree this. Verses 15 and 16, we agreed that law-keeping justifies no one. We agree on that. Let's read it. Verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, that's you and me, Peter, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Works of the law, that's just behavior that the Old Testament law requires. You're not put right with God by that. But by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. So Peter, you and I, we agree, don't we, that hard legalism's wrong. We agree that, don't we, Peter? It's not that you obey certain rules and you're put right. It's not how it works. We know that's true. But in the Old Testament, laws, God gave laws to his people as a response to what he'd done. He had saved them and said, now live this way. But some had turned it on its head and said, oh, if we obey your laws, you owe us. We think we want to go Equation one, our obedience equals salvation. Well, let me put it in these terms. Uh, back in July, my, my in-laws both turned 70 and uh, kindly decided to take the wider family away on holiday to Croatia. Fantastic. Uh, we had a terrific time. Uh, and uh, they're, they're a delightful company. Uh, and they said, look, we want to take everyone away. We're going to pay, pay for everything. It's all inclusive where we're going. You, you just don't need to put your, pockets, money, your hands in your pockets for anything. Uh, can we agree that these dates to come? Mm, yes. Um, uh, just two rules, two rules, said, uh, said my wife's mum. Two rules uh, and this. We don't want to be in one another's pockets all the time. We don't want to spend all day long with one another. We'll go a bit nuts. But uh, let's agree that we'll have dinner together every night. Well, yeah, no problem. You're, you're great company. We'll all sit together every night, yeah? Uh, rule number two, last time we went away on holiday, you got terribly sunburned. So my second rule is you must wear sunscreen. <laughs> okay? And those are, that's it. Well, we can live with that. Uh, and in one sense, here's a free holiday. You've just got to keep these two rules. Mm, they're quite nice rules. Uh, deal. What would be utterly perverse and unlikely and absurd? What would be perverse if I said, oh, interesting, if I keep those two rules, 
I will earn myself a holiday in Croatia. In fact, if I keep those two rules, I don't need you. So I decide, I'm going to resolve for years, for years, I smother myself all over in sunscreen <laughs> until I've got a thousand empty cartons, cartons, bottles. Bottles, is that the They're plastic though, anyway. Uh, a thousand empty <laughs> things of sunscreen and I bind them together in a massive raft. And every mealtime I ever have with my in-laws, I steal a knife and I melt them all down and make this a massive awe. And then one day I say, look at my raft and look at my awe. I'm obeying the two rules and I'm going to get myself to Croatia without you. I don't need you. And when I get there, you must owe me a holiday because I've got myself to Croatia. That would be eccentric. And unlikely and absurd. And yeah, yeah, yeah. To take laws that God had given in the Old Testament and say, if we keep these laws, we'll get to heaven ourselves. You will owe us. What? No, no, no. No, no, they're never meant to be that. They're a response to my generosity in saving you. That's hard legalism. If I keep five pillars of Islam, I'll go, I earned heaven, if I keep 613 laws of Judaism, if I'm a nice enough person, if my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds in a sort of vaguely willy-wishy-washy Anglican way, then I'll go to heaven. No. No. No hard legalism. And Peter and Paul, they agreed. It's not right. Only by faith in the work of Jesus Christ. He took your condemnation. You receive his righteousness. That's the only way you receive salvation. So they agreed on that. But, verse 17, but you, Peter, Cephas, think that law-keeping makes you better. Verse 17, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews, you and me, Peter, find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Complicated little thing. But verse 17, if we Jews by birth, if we, trusting in justification by faith, become just like Gentile sinners, what? Then aren't we worse than before? Peter's logic seems to be, um, okay, we're all saved by Jesus, but before I become a Christian, morally I'm a sort of eight out of 10 guy, I do quite well, and the Gentiles, they're sort of three out of 10 guys, and now if you're saying we only get into heaven by what Jesus has done and not by our own performance, well then my seven out of 10 and his two out of 10, they don't really count anything, I may as well just be on the same level as his three out of 10 as a Gentile. Doesn't that make me more sinful than before? That seems to be the logic. To which Paul says, absolutely not. What are you talking about? If you rebuild law-keeping as the way to be justified right with God, then you really are a lawbreaker. That is, you've rejected God's good plan of salvation. So Paul is accusing Peter of a racism that matters. Peter, what you're saying is you need to have your faith in Jesus Christ and become like me in my Judaism, in my rule-keeping, in order to be saved. That's no good. No, faith in Jesus Christ equals salvation. I guess that in one sense, the most obvious, more recent example of this in history 
very striking. In, uh, most will know this. In 1933, Adolf Hitler comes to power in Germany, and the Nazis changed the law so that Jewish Christians were not allowed to go to church with Aryan Christians, German Christians. You had to go to separate buildings. So now you've got different two tracks, if you will, of Christianity going on in the country. Now, most of the clergy went, well, not ideal. What does it matter, though? I mean, we're still worshipping Jesus, just they have to do it over there, and, and we have to do it over here. It doesn't really matter. And the one man who kicked up an enormous fuss was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He published a book, The Church and the Jewish Question. He put it in these terms. What is at stake is the very task of preaching the Christian gospel. We must say, here is the church where Jew and German stand together under the word of God. Here is the proof whether a church is still the church or not. The gospel stands or falls on our decision here. That's very striking. But he could see what was going on was, instead of the gospel, faith in Jesus Christ, that gives you salvation. Now what was being said was, faith in Jesus Christ, oh, and, and a certain ethnicity, that makes you the best type of Christian. We're kind of going in the same direction, but now we've got business class and economy. We're two different types of Christian here. And Bonhoeffer said in 1933, as soon as you say that, you've lost the gospel. Because everyone comes to know Jesus and has a relationship with God in the same terms. Faith gives you salvation in Jesus Christ. There's nothing more you need to add. You can't say you need to have faith in Jesus Christ and be like us to be saved or to have proper, full, superior salvation. You can't do that. Look, in practical terms, that's probably unlikely to be our issue. What, what you and I might have to look out for, here's a few examples. Watch out for a national pride. Pride, in the sense of enjoying your own country, your country of birth, is a happy feeling. It's good, I think. Feelings of superiority are not. I love my country, great. I love my country because it's much better than yours. No. I mean, you have a bit of banter about it. But if it becomes, uh, and our Christianity is better than yours, no. Oh, everyone was a Christian. You just have faith in Jesus to become a Christian. But um, the church in the West, it is much superior to the church in Africa. It's just much better. Because racially, we're just more developed. Morally, we're more advanced. Don't do that. Faith in Jesus plus become like us. Mm. That's what Peter's raging against. Watch out for class pride. Our church is far better than the ones on the estate. Or our church on this housing estate, they're much better than the poncy middle class ones. We're real here. Watch out for that, which is sort of faith in Jesus plus become like us. National pride, class pride, temperamental pride, can there be such a thing? Oh, I think you hear it. That church over there, it's just all touchy-feely and daft. They're all silly. We're serious about Christianity here. 
We could flip it round. That bunch over there are so clenched, they wouldn't know joy if it came and slapped them around the face like a wet fish. <laughs> We're the joyful ones. They're glum as anything. Because really, to be a proper Christian, you need to have faith in Jesus and be like us. And that lot over there, they're not, they're not really proper Christians, to be honest. They might just squeak aboard the, the, uh, the aircraft on Aeroflot, but that's about it. And they're all manifestations of this sort of attitude. Faith in Jesus, plus, it's a soft legalism, plus, well, you've got to become like us. That gives you salvation, or proper Christianity. And Peter says, that's how I'm living. And Paul says to him, you're a hypocrite. You know that the line of the gospel, you know the gospel says, all of us are morally bankrupt before God. None of us have anything that we bring before him. Our only hope is the righteousness of Jesus Christ given to us as a gift. And you know that's the line of the gospel, but you're swerving off over here and saying, yeah, but this makes you better morally as a Christian. This is faith in Jesus plus become like us. That's what you really need. You've lost the gospel, Peter. The story's told, and I don't know if it's true, but um, hey. The story's told of um, uh, not long after 1815, uh, the Duke of Wellington, the most famous man in the world at that time. He'd defeated Napoleon. If you go to his house, number one London, just across the road from here, you can see in 1815 he defeated Napoleon, and uh, every monarch, emperor, king in the world absolutely dumped treasure upon him. So you go to number one, London, and Wellington was Mr. Bling in 1815, the most famous, most successful, most wonderful man in the world. Uh, the story's told of not long after battle, uh, he going with soldiers to receive the Lord's Supper. We'll do that a little later. And uh, he knelt down to receive the Lord's Supper next to just a common squatty soldier. <gasps> it's, it's the Duke! And so he jumped to his feet and saluted. And uh, apparently, Duke Wellington said, young man, come with me, kneel down, for all are equal before the cross of Jesus Christ. I don't know if that's true. I'd like to hope it's true. The concept is certainly true. It's faith in Jesus, that's it, in his work for you, plus nothing gives you salvation. So one good test, really, of how well we've understood the gospel is how quick we are to welcome people unlike us, culturally, racially, ethnically, financially. That's a test. Look, Paul swerved away in the behavior then. Uh, we, uh, they agree that law-keeping justifies no one, but you, Peter, think that law-keeping makes you better. No, here's how we live. Here's how we live as Christians. Verses 19 to 21, then we're done. We live as Christians by union with Christ. What does that mean? Verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Uh, the law predicted Jesus Christ. Jesus died in obedience to the law and is risen again. What does that mean? Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a very strange sentence. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. What does that mean? Here's a sort of daft illustration, but let me see if this helps. You go to Japan 
and on your holidays in Japan, for some reason, you commit murder. In fact, multiple murder. Japan is one of the few countries that still has the death sentence by hanging. And so uh, you're tried, and you actually admit your guilt. And so the law says you must die for your crimes. Forgive me, it's a little gruesome, this. Uh, And so the day comes for your execution, and uh, you're hanged, and you die. And the doctors come along and and test your pulse, you're dead. And they wheel you to the morgue. And about half an hour later, you sit up (gasps) and say, I've paid the penalty of death for the crimes I've committed, and now I'm free to go. The law has no hold on me. It's, of course, unlikely. Jesus Christ dies. He's our representative. He dies a death, so all that, we have, all, the, all that we've done wrong, he takes the penalty for and dies and rises again and says, the law has no hold on me. And because I represent all Christians, the law has no hold on them. They've died and they've risen again. They have new life and law has no hold on them. They are free. Now what he's saying in verse 20 is not a sort of mental, brainy, sort of cerebral truth. Do you see how it's meant to be absolutely life-changing? Verse 20 is not my personality is suppressed, I no longer live, but there's a brand new person. I am born again. So you see five times, it's all about life. Verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God. This is not just a mental truth. Paul is emphasizing, here is how change comes in the Christian life. You know you're united to Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. You know you have new life within you. And Jesus empowers you to change. Christ is in me, with me, for me. The Christian life is not primarily about me, but about him. So the Christian looks up and says, you died for me, Jesus. You've risen again to life for me. And by your spirit, you dwell within me. And please now, as I look to you, would you help me walk the line of the gospel? Would you help me live consistently with what you've done for me? Would you help me do that, Jesus? Would my behavior match what I know in my head? Would I live this way? I know, I have faith in you. I know that's given me salvation, so I want to live a life of obedience. As we finish, can I say that Peter knew this in his head. You may be a may have been a Christian for years and know this in your head. You may still be one who wouldn't call themselves a Christian, but you get this in your head that upon the cross, Jesus died to pay a penalty for you so you can be righteous. You kind of get that. But getting it in your head is not enough. You you need to let it shape you. I'll give you two couple examples. Charles Wesley, hymn writer, wrote shed loads of hymns, uh, and we'll sing one in a moment. About five years after he'd become a Christian, I think he'd started writing hymns, he came to this passage in his devotions, his quiet times. Galatians 2 and verse 20 in particular. Let me read you what he said. 
I read, and then I reread the words of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Then I labored, and I waited, and I prayed to the living God to feel that truth, who loved me and gave himself for me, for me. That is a truth that Jesus has done for me. It affects me. And he said, I just stayed there until I thought I'd got it. And then he wrote a song. It's called, And Can It Be? And we'll sing it in a moment. Amazing God, how can it be? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my gods, would die for me? And of course, that is the testimony of the Christian. Not that just at a point in history, Jesus died, rose again, and that's interesting, and we follow him as Lord. But he did it for me. And knowing that he did it for me, that affects my behavior. I now walk the line of the gospel in how I treat other people because I know it personally. That is my justification. Christ died for me. I add nothing. I stand before the Lord and say, I am worth nothing before you, but Jesus has given me salvation. You've got to walk the line as well as knowing it in your head. The first I became a Christian uh, during my time at university, mainly through reading Luke's gospel. The, uh, the first Bible study I went to after I'd become a Christian was on Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 21. I'm not sure how much I understood, to be honest. But I do remember reading verse 21 and going home and finding my Bible uh, in my hall of residence and reading verse 21 over and over again. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And thinking to myself, I can't gain righteousness through the law. I can't be accepted by God because of my behavior, which must mean that Christ died for everything wrong that I've done. And that is a wonderful truth. He's done everything for you. Can it be, can it be that thou, my gods, would die for me? Yeah. He's done everything. And you want to be like Charles Wesley, you want to labor and pray and wait until that truth affects radically how you walk in line with the gospel. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, here is the most wonderful truth. We would never put ourselves right with you. We can never live a life good enough, but you've done everything in Jesus. It is the most wonderful truth. And many of us here know that truth and we celebrate it and we're thrilled that you've done everything so we contribute nothing to being saved, righteous before you. And our Father, our prayer beyond that is that we would live this way that that truth would so 
affect our minds, our hearts, that we live consistently, relate to others humbly, in line with the truth of the gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.